Well, while we do not know what the Apostle John's prayer was, as he survived persecution and was exiled on a prison island named Patmos, it seems very likely that Jesus appeared to him by the means of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ and spoke to him and answered that prayer that he would see Christ. Now, John knew Christ. He knew what he looked like. He knew what he looked like before he was crucified. He knew what our risen Lord looked like following his resurrection, which, by the way, is the only glimpse that you and I will get to see is our risen Lord. John got to see the crucified Lord. But I wonder this morning, do you know what Christ looks like? Would you recognize Jesus? If he was to walk into this room, not merely as the Jesus as a historical figure, but would you recognize Jesus as your own Savior? Well, one reason why the Word of God has been given to us is that every heart would know who Jesus is, that you would know him not just as Lord, but as Savior. My prayer for you this morning, and really our heart's prayer at Providence here, is that everyone who would come underneath the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, the singing, the fellowship, the prayer, all that abounds in the life here at Providence, that people would truly know, that you would truly know who Jesus is for yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you know Jesus. You know him. He's your Savior. But maybe there's just something cold in your heart. It isn't that you have outright denied him. Oh, you serve him and you do good things. But this morning, we'll be looking this morning at a, a letter to a church in Ephesus. And the title of the sermon this morning is called Christ Among Us. And I invite you to turn with me to the last book in your Bible, to the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we'll begin in verse number one of chapter one. And by reading through chapter two and verse number seven, I invite you to, to follow along with me as we read the words of Christ here in this written by the pen of John. As God closes out his written revelation to us in our canonized book of 66 books, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna 
and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and AIDS. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus says the word of God. Let us be blessed by the hearing of the word of God. Let's pray. We hear like John heard this morning. By means of the Spirit, his inspiration, his illumination, his very presence in believers' hearts this morning, we hear the words of Christ this morning, as faithfully delivered as on that day. O Lord, let us listen. Let our hearts be open to everything that you have to tell us. O let us love Jesus Christ. Firstly and supremely. May your word do its work this morning as we have prayed and bring everlasting, the abundance of everlasting life into our cold, dead, faithless hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First century Ephesus was the gateway to Asia from Rome. It was a large, thriving city full of commerce, trade, and the hustle and bustle 
of a major harbor town. Having been built on top of previous pagan cultures, the people had taken deities from former cultures and created a sort of mutation of a sex goddess named Diane. This multi-breasted deity was, was, a repre- was represented by a haunting sculpture in the middle of a temple surrounded by dozens of hand-carved stone pillars and ascending steps all around. The inner parts of the temple reflected a bit of the picture of the goddess herself with chambers built for lewd acts meant to be moments of worship for the cravings of men and women. Deep within the walls of this temple lay the treasury of the whole entire city itself with gold and other treasuries that were equivalent to the New York Stock Exchange and their trade and importance to the everyday life of the people and the industries of the town. It was the town bank. Ironically, surrounding the temple was the daily dwelling of vile criminals, even thieves themselves, who were attracted to the low-life morality of the temple life and the temple rituals itself. The Apostle Paul had labored with much persecution in Ephesus for the sake of Christ's name, proclaiming Christ supreme over false gods like Diane. An unpopular message, as he would be used of the Lord to make many disciples and form a very good church there. And we have a letter in our Bible to the church of Ephesus. Paul's caring discipling of the believers was shaped by his mentoring heart. As he taught these now converted pagans a new way to live by being faithful in areas of their life like their marriage. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Nurturing Christian parents. Parents, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Tender-hearted in their fellowship with one another, forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven you. Such warm and practical and Christ-centered mentoring. But he especially called their attention in his greeting in Ephesians 1, to the fact that they had been set apart by the mercies of God to rightfully sit in higher places than Diane's temple. They had been given a seat in the heavenlies. And they were to live out that position in the midst of a world that was only living on a very earthly plane. In Christ's approach to the seven churches here in the book of Revelation, we're, beginning, we're going to begin to study and find that Jesus includes several components to, uh, to every church he addresses of the seven churches. There's a general template, if you will, in how Jesus approaches the churches. Some of the elements of this template, some of the elements of his address to them will be missing Namely, some churches will not receive commendation. They're doing nothing right. Some churches will receive commendation, as illustrated here in our first church, this church of Ephesus. So the the common components include that Jesus cares for his church. That Jesus has a correspondent, a messenger. In our Bibles, it's translated the angel of the church. This means the messenger. That's what an angel really is, a messenger. And so this means that the elders would be the messengers, the deliverers of the letter. They were to read this letter to their congregation when they met together next. And so two pastors are called to be messengers, faithful messengers to all the words of Christ, to the people of God. So there's a correspondence. So there's the care of Christ. There's the church and the correspondent and the city. There's a a commendation of five of the seven churches receive commendation. There's concern, his initial concern, his moving into the heart of the problem. And then there's the command of what to do about the problem and counsel and how how to repent of the problem and And in some cases, there's even comfort at the end of his letter. But this morning, we're looking at this letter to Ephesus because we have been commanded to look at this letter. 
I don't know if you, you were following as we're reading that first chapter, but you and I have been commanded as the Church of Christ to hear the words of Jesus Christ to the Church of Ephesus as the Church of Providence this morning. We have been commanded to hear these words. It isn't that we just pick up this book and, well, you know what? Some of this might have to do with us. And uh, it was, it was uh, relevant for them. So, you know, by means of logic and whatever, it must be relevant for us. We're Christians and this is, our, this is the word of God for us. No, we have, we have been, been given explicit instruction this morning to hear the words of Christ. So it's not a single one of us this morning in the hearing of this word of God that is able to duck out from the responsibility of what Jesus is calling us unto this morning. And likely, and I say likely, I say actually sovereignly and in an ordained way, God is placing this passage in your life right now to deal with. And so the Lord addressed this church in Ephesus in front of us all for us all to respond in a way that is fitting to each part of his careful counsel for them. The question for us to read this letter in the midst of the church of Christ this morning is this. Here's the question for you to consider as the word of God speaks to you this morning. Here's your question. Do I love the Lord Jesus Christ as demonstrated by doing the first works? We're not asking, do you love Jesus? That's not what the passage is asking this morning. So as we move into this passage this morning, we recognize that Jesus has a wonderful care for his church. Did you notice at the end of chapter one how Jesus dwells among the church? Look in chapter one, verse 12. And I I looked up and I turned to hear the voice that was speaking to me and I saw him. I saw him, and he describes how he was, and I fell at his feet. The description reminds us of two positions that Jesus holds for us and necessarily for us on behalf of our salvation. Jesus is our great high priest. He has represented us wonderfully, magnificently, and perfectly before a holy father. That's what a priest does. A priest represents the people before God. Jesus is wearing here robes that remind us and the spectacular nature of his appearance reminds us of his priestly work. He has represented us wonderfully, completely, even in a substitutionary way before the Father. And here he appears to to John in such a way. But also mingled, it seems, amidst his apparel, is the holiness and righteousness that is meeting the obligations of a holy judge. You see that his, his feet are, are, are burnished bronze, and this is the, the, the fact that he has been purified over and over. There is no imperfection found in him, not only as a priest, but as a holy judge, and we are worthy to be in his sight because of what he has done as a priest. This imagery is powerful and it's tremendous. And John alerts us to this, that this is what Jesus looks like. Now, by the way, this is not what Jesus looked like last time John saw Jesus. The last time John saw Jesus was his ascension into the clouds, likely in some sort of glorified state. But this is a spectacular image that makes John now not stand as he sees Jesus ascend to the clouds as in Acts chapter 1. But now, now John, when he sees this very Jesus who he had walked with in this earth for about three years, John falls to his face when he sees Jesus whom he had walked with at one time. He falls to his face. Now he says that Jesus walks amidst them and he holds the seven stars. This is a word of protection and comfort. The psalmist reminds us that the Lord upholds a good man with his hands. Psalm 95, 7 says, we are the sheep of his hand. Psalm 139, the psalmist reflects in verse 10, thy hand, thy right hand shall hold me. I love how Isaiah puts, how God puts it on Isaiah, Isaiah 40, 11. He shall gather the lambs with his arm. 
All of this reminds us that you and I, as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, are secured in the very hands of Jesus Christ. That personal imagery, not not locked away in a vault, not just set aside in some sort of special group, but we are are personally secured in the hands of Jesus the Almighty as the Church of Christ. He holds the seven stars and he walks even amongst the lampstands, and this is the elders. The seven stars are the are the leaders of the church, and then the seven lampstands are the churches themselves. And he walks amidst them. And by the way, this is a present tense verb. He is walking in the midst of them. He walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he beholds the good and evil of them. The good and evil. He's moving up and down, if you will, in the aisle of the congregation. And he's tending to the lampstands. And so he's not only securing you, but in his securing of you, he knows when you're good and when you're evil. And he still holds you. What mercy. And he knows our works, both good and evil, and he still holds on to us. <laughs> he's walking in our midst and he sees everything, and yet he has still secured and promised a love for us that is unfailing. And so he not only secures the church, but he is with the church. Do you believe that? Well, folks, that's the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion says, let's put together a bunch of beliefs and let's just keep ascribing to them and let's hold fast to them, let's perpetuate them. But biblical Christianity, following Jesus Christ, is being with Jesus Christ. And so their position and our position is with Jesus and our condition is secure. And so he mentions that there's a correspondence city in the church. In the Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul left the church of Ephesus and the elders, he was parting and he was on the shore about ready to get on a ship. And Paul falls to his knees there on the beach, it seems, on the Mediterranean. And, and he just crumples. He has invested He has invested into these people in Ephesus. He has seen them come from sometimes even uh, satanic worshipers and certainly pagan idolaters. And he has seen their lives genuinely converted and even a robust theology begin to become fruitful in the church, especially among the elders and the followers of Christ in Ephesus. And when the Apostle Paul leaves him in Acts chapter 20, he is shedding tears and the elders of the church are, are just weeping over him. And part of their weeping is, do you have to go? We have, we have endured so much together. We have learned so much from you. And now here, about two generations later, we believe, is the book of Revelation. So about two generations have passed from the beginning of this church to now who is in the church. It's likely different elders in a different congregation, physically and and, uh, chronologically. But they have done well since then to guard what the Apostle Paul had faithfully delivered to them about Jesus Christ. They have done valiantly to preserve the orthodoxy, the purity of the teaching of Christ. And this actually becomes one of the commendations by Jesus Christ. These people have become really good at discerning false teaching. They will have nothing of false teaching in their church. Some have suggested that that the Nicolaitans was a form or a thought that was... um, sort of the rising up of apostolic authority. That is, that some would seek to come into the church and to lord over people. 
and to maybe introduce different nuances and different teachings of Scripture that the people didn't recognize from the faithful teaching of the apostles, but now carried some sort of authority and weight because of the charisma of this, of this fellow, of this, of this self-appointed apostle. The church of Ephesus was able to spot false teaching from far away and keep it outside of their church doors. Secondly, the second part of the accommodation is that they were very industrious in working and doing good things. They had strived together. Their, their work together as a church was, was noteworthy. It was exemplary. It might even be a model church in the way in which they serve one another and maybe even the needy outside of them in just working out grace and mercy to their inward community and to their outward community. They were busy with ministry programs. They were busy doing the ministry and the work of the church. There was a busyness about them. Their church calendar was full. Everything was good on the calendar too. Everything was intentional and meaningful. Everything was good. The third part of the commendation is that Jesus had noticed that they did not grow weary in the busyness of the task. Yeah, their church calendar was full, but, but they weren't like, you know, taking a break and stepping aside saying, this is too much. Uh, we're doing too much for the church. We're doing, we're doing too much here. I need to take a break. They were happily working out the church ministry together. And they were despised by the community, by the work that they were doing. Yet they did not become discouraged by it. They could have ceased to exist and the community would have rejoiced that they were done, that their doors were closed. So they have become really good at orthodoxy and maintaining doctrinal purity. And each person in the church seemed to have grown in their personal discernment of what they should take in as far as spiritual food. They were eager to stay close to the teachings of the apostles, and they valiantly and articulately defended against wrong teaching. There were some churches where they're always looking externally for evil men and preventing them from coming into the church and deceiving them from false teaching. This was one of them. Sadly, what happens, though, in a church that can become so discerning and so good at watching out for error from without, some churches need to look for the devil in their own pulpit. This is often where the wolf is. While busying themselves, churches are often looking outward and making sure they're keeping everything outside uh, from getting inside, sometimes a church can become deceived and blinded that the wolf is looking right at them from the most trusted and intimate place of the congregation, the pulpit and lectern. They have done well to keep wolves from coming in for the sake of Jesus' name, and no one could question them from, for their doctrinal purity. For example, on their church website, I say tongue-in-cheek, in their classrooms and in their pulpit, everything was right that was being declared. They, their work was working out the mission of the church with fervency and commitment. You couldn't find a more hard-working church. Their labors demonstrated that they were on board with the church programming. Who wouldn't want a church like this? Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like this? They're the right teaching and they're doing the right things. These are things often very attractive to us as we're seeking out a church, you know, moving into a new area and seeking out even a church to, to fellowship with as, as fellow believers. But Jesus has a very, very grave concern about this church and his concern is that they had left their first love. Pardon me. 
not sure where we're going on this. If anybody could help me with that, just get to the one on the concern, left to the first love. Now, there is a firstness about love. I don't want to open up a can of worms, but I'm, I guess I'm going to. Do you remember your first love? They had left their first love. That first love, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean chronological love. It means the love of priority, the love of supremacy, the love of centrality, the the love that is first in, in everything. They have left their first love. A first love means simply that love of first importance, the ultimate love. Thank you. I think I clicked too fast ahead through this. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I, if I do wonderful things without love, what am I? Just empty. If I do things without love, I'm just, I'm just like this orchestra that's just clanging, but it really produces no good music. The fact is that it is very possible for you and I to do right things without love. This ought to make us tremble. Now, I know that even just suggesting that, that every one of us with a tender heart this morning would say, I I think I know what you mean. I can go through the motions, whether it's with another person or with God, without love. It's not going to terrify us that we can that we can deceive ourselves to the point that we could do something that's meant to be an act of love, but is only an act. This is just how how deceitful our hearts can be and how how twisted our, our lives can be. It ought to make us tremble. It ought to make... It ought to shake our hearts to the core that it is very possible and it's very plausible that we, our church, you and I, can go through all the motions of Christianity and yet do it all without love. This, by the way, is simply called religion. But it's not just love that's missing. It's love for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is getting at here. These people may have had some sort of love for the brotherhood and some sort of love for their community in a mercy-driven, a grace-centered way. There, there might have been love and exchange and, and body life, but listen, what Jesus is able to identify, because he searches the hearts of men, because he has the bronze feet, he is the pure judge, and the holy God is able to look into the hearts and even look behind the deceitful veils the layers of veils and curtains that cover our most private, deceitful thinking, he's able to discern and pull them back and say, I know you, you don't love me. Everything looks like you do, but you and I know you're not in love with me. It isn't just love that Jesus says that they're lacking. It's love for the one with the nail-pierced hands. He's not condemning them and telling them they need to have a love for a certain denomination. They need to have a love for a system of beliefs. Or they need to have a love and a commitment to knowing that they're doing everything all right. Jesus calls to the church of Ephesus and he says, you have stopped doing all of this out of love for me. And that's what ought to make us tremble is that we can build buildings and we can build programs and we can fill seats and we can write books 
and we can sing songs, and we can fellowship with one another, and we can give money to the poor, and we can care for one another when we're ill, and when we're sick, and when we're needy, and we can do all the things. But if we do not love Jesus supremely in all of it, we stand condemned. John wrote a short letter, including to the church of Ephesus, but to all the churches, maybe especially to Jerusalem. He wrote a short letter called, in our Bibles, the first letter of John. And he writes this, this is the message we have heard from him that is Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. For the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses, cleanses the sin from all of us. Listen, we have fellowship with one another. This is saying we have fellowship with Jesus. He's not talking in this, in this part of the passage about fellowship with one another. Let's have a church fellowship or we're getting along with one another. Let me read that again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Essential, the core of Christianity is fellowship with Jesus Christ. We can walk in good works without walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. This is sin because it's not practicing the truth, it's not practicing what is true. Loveless good works is not love at all. Jesus is saying to Ephesus, what John said to them, you need to know and love Jesus. It is the fellowship of Jesus, the fellowship with Jesus that cleanses us. Listen, it is the fellowship with Jesus that cleanses us and fits us for devotional works devoted works. And it is this fellowship with Jesus that ought to permeate all of our walk, all of our life. All of our life is meant to be lived out by our walking with Jesus. This admonition is given to the whole church. There's not a single one of us who is supposed to duck from this passage. Each of us individually are called to repentance in this passage. We need to recognize this morning it is entirely possible for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are living our lives for God and yet we are not loving God. The next thing we see then is then what are they to do? The command, remember where you have fallen. Remember where you have fallen. Where had they fallen from? Well, the Apostle Paul, in, in his greetings to uh, the church of Ephesus, this church, in his letter, he had said, you are seated in heavenly places. The Apostle Paul had declared them to them that they were seated in heavenly places. They were positioned with all the beloved of God from ages past to present, the, the patriarchs and the prophets and the people of Israel and the apostles and, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's not saying they had fallen from grace here. Jesus isn't saying you have fallen, you've lost your salvation. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to you. That is to say that they had lost the blessing and the redemption and salvation. But what he is saying is they had ceased to fellowship with the Lord on high. Their fellowship at present was only on the horizontal. 
the blessing of their position in the heavenly seats was not being enjoyed. They weren't taking advantage of the fact that they were seated in heavenly places. They were counted worthy to enjoy and delight in God. They were not enjoying the, the vertical relationship they had. They were merely enjoying the horizontal relationship. And it is, it is entirely possible that a church gets along really well with each other. but fails to fellowship with God. They were not entreating the Father and the Son. They were not enjoying and delighting in the vertical relationship they had been granted. They were settling for merely the horizontal. That's what this church was doing. They were settling. And that's easy to do because settling means each of us just create how high the water rises, right? None of us shakes the boat. None of us makes another one feel uncomfortable because we're all just going to create some sort of equilibrium and we're all going to get along. But when we're pursuing the, the vertical relationship of Jesus Christ, we're all pressing towards the mark of the prize of the high call. And all of us, the, the water level rises. It doesn't stay stagnant. It doesn't stay the same level. Our fellowship with the Lord is dependent upon our giving of ourselves to his inward work in our lives, that mysterious and inner work of the Spirit's ministry in our hearts. It is in the plane of living that reveals that the fellowship had been broken. The earth can never suffice for the Christian. We must not only visit the heavenly places, but we must enjoy the seat that we have with Christ there in the heavenly places. Earthly living is nothing like heavenly delighting. Earth is base. This is common. Even though fellowship with other believers in the church can be on a delight, and by the way, it should be a delight, it is nothing and indeed sinful without delight in Jesus Christ firstly. And so Jesus gives them counsel. He gives them counsel. He says, do the first works. Turn back by doing the first works. What are those first works? Well, again, they're the works of priority and even, in some ways, of experience. What is the believer's joy if it isn't what he had first begun to do? What did you do when you first received Jesus into your life? Have you ever carried something for a long time? Something very heavy, and finally it was time to release it and let it go, let it go on the ground. And now your arms, your, your body feels so much lighter. When you came to Jesus Christ, you had been carrying a heavy load, a heavy burden of sin. And when Jesus Christ entered into your life, he took that sin and that sin was released from you. It was a weight that suddenly you were relieved from. And in those first moments as you gave your life to Christ, you were looking into his eyes of grace. You were praying and, and reading and hearing the word as, as very bread itself for your soul. And Jesus is saying, come to me like you did in the first part. At the first time when you came to me, come to me. Just come. Abide with me. Don't tell me what you've done for me. And that's key here to the church of Ephesus. Don't pull out your resume. I don't need to come to you. Look what I've been doing for you. Reminds me of the song between that married couple on Fiddler on the Roof. I wash your clothes and, I, and you ask me, do you love me? Jesus doesn't want to hear your resume. He cares about it. but he wants your nearness.
He wants you. It's like he's saying, I've made a way back to me. And you say, how do I get back to Jesus? How did you get to Jesus in the first place? First of all, he made the way. And you just crossed over that way. You began to speak to him and dwell with him. And you let him speak to you. You want to meet with Jesus? Open your Bible. Begin to see him there. Let him speak to you. You speak to him. This is the first works. He's made the way. You don't have to be confused. You don't have to be distraught. You don't have to be discouraged and say, it's been a long time since I crossed over the way. Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't care how long it's been. He says, come to me. Come to me. Fellowship with me. Praise me and pray in me and read, read of me and enjoy me. Abide with me through the means that I've provided. And so do the first works. What would it have been like to hear this letter read for the first time by the elders of the church? The letter had been read, and now there's silence. Will Christ really shut down the church if we don't listen and obey? Because in this admonition to Ephesus, he says, if you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand. The lampstand is the church. I will take, I will close your doors. Once a very vibrant, gospel-preaching, Christ-centered, others-loving church, now doors closed. What a terrifying thought. And then it's even more compiled in terrifying ways to know that, that I'm part of the problem, that you're part of the problem, that we are part of the problem. It isn't just the church. But he walks in the midst of the church. And he knows you by name in the church. And he knows the good and the evil that you're up to. We can't avoid what the Spirit has just spoken to our hearts with piercing conviction. The true threat that Christ would remove his presence from among them was a horrifying thought. But read with me at the end of verses 6 and 7 in Revelation 2. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we have this terror, we have this dread, and, and more biblically, we might even say it's a conviction the Spirit has addressed our loveless hearts and we feel undone and we want to know, okay, the way back is to meet together again with Jesus. And then Jesus comes in with comfort and he says this. He doesn't leave it there. He comforts the church and he comforts you and I with the assurance of his enduring blessing. Because Jesus overcame the sin and the grave, he is granted overcoming to all who place their faith in him. He has granted overcoming to you. Even if you're not loving him right now. 
even though we can never measure up to God's holy standard, and even though we can never love Jesus continually and perfectly in every moment, because of Jesus Christ, we have become overcomers in Jesus Christ. That delight to be with him, he pictures like a person who is standing at the tree of life that once existed in the middle of the Garden of Eden, who Adam and Eve in their perfect state enjoyed in the presence of God, an uncursed fruit. He pictures like a person who is standing at the tree of life and he plucks the fruit of this tree and he bites into it. It's abundant and it's full and it's satisfying and it's rich and it's succulent and its sweetness fills the senses. And overcomers, believers, we haven't lived the life to its fullest yet. More and better awaits us at the right hand of Jesus as pictured and yes, even physically demonstrated by this tree of life, which will be made available to you and I when we see Jesus on that day. Adam and Eve had to cease eating of that tree. But we are invited back because Jesus has come to us and he has opened the gates of Eden with his arms on the cross. Says, come. All of history, man was never welcomed back to the garden. But now, because of what Jesus has done, in the midst of your failures, because of your failures, because of your sin, Jesus has made a way back to himself. And wow, it is paradise. And you and I, get to have a foretaste of that by the Spirit's blessing when we abide with Christ now. Let's pray.